Welcome back to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, here with my co-host Carrie Plitt, and we are so happy to be back in the studio together. It's been a while. Yeah, it really has. How are you doing, Carrie? I'm good. I'm a little bit... I, I shouldn't still be jet-lagged, but I'm a little bit jet-lagged this morning, so slowly waking up, I hope, through the course of the recording this morning. But Amazing. otherwise, very pleased to see your face. I mean, yeah. I did see your face over the summer, but... It does feel like we're back to school. Yeah, definitely. The microphone obscuring the lower part of your face yes. is what I'm used to. <laughs> <laughs> also, there's no shoulds about it. Jet lag takes as long as it takes. Thank it you. Sucks. Thank you for supporting me. I'm looking forward to you being really like freaky and in the twilight zone throughout this recording Yeah, session. I'm a little dopey. Mm-hmm. I bump into a lot of things and I'm quite clumsy. It's adorable. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well... Where are we starting? Oh, oh what are we doing? We're yes. back. <laughs> <laughs> well, Octavia, let me tell you, this is Minisode 7. Is it now? Yeah, we're, we're back from our break. We're feeling good. We have an incredible autumn lined up, but we thought we'd uh, start you out with this little bonus episode. Um, mm-hmm. So we have a slightly different program for this Minisode, but first we have a few announcements, don't we? We do indeed. So we've got a live event with Zadie Actual Smith. Mm, Zadie fucking Smith. <laughs> That's Zadie Smith. Zadie fucking Smith. That's what I'm going to say. Zadie Smith. Zadie Smith, who is a writer who, you know, a few of you may have heard of. Um, and I'm pretty sure that Carrie and I have both recommended her work many, many times across the many years that we've been doing this yes. show. Um, and we're going to be recording a live event with her up in Sheffield on October the 3rd. Please come and join us if you're based up that way. Even if you're not, hop on a train. It's going to be absolutely bloody brilliant if you can't make it we are going to be releasing it as a podcast but i think there's going to be something special about it so yeah we'd love to see you there we are also launching some literary friction merchandise we're going to start with some really excellent tote bags which you might have seen some pictures of us clutching them gleefully on our various social media um if you are like, like support absolute us, idiots that's what we do best <laughs> <laughs> so yeah if you'd like to support us with a bit of cash then watch this space we'll give you more info when they're ready we'll be sending them out hopefully international shipping available but we're trying to figure all that out yes. at the moment and uh oh yeah what else oh yeah and we are also really excited to announce that we are this year the podcast in residence at the Cheltenham Literary Festival. Yeah. So we will be around the festival for the last weekend from the 11th to the 13th of October. We are recording one of our podcasts there. We're also going to be hosting a few events and sort of around hobnobbing with authors and <laughs> schmoozing, <laughs> doing literary things. So right. I mean come to the festival, book some tickets or uh, you can look forward to our updates and our show based yeah, there. Definitely. We will also be clutching our literary friction totes for the whole weekend. Yes. <laughs> so if you want to see the merch in action. All right, I'll stop with the hard sell. Yeah, we can't wait for that. For now though, for this slightly unusual minisode, we have Half of a live event I did at Waterstones in London over the summer with two very different but very brilliant essayists. Emily Pine, who wrote a book called Notes to Self, which Carrie recommended on the show a Mm -hmm. little while ago. Fantastic um, essay collection. And Gia Tolentino, whose book Trick Mirror is also a fantastic essay collection um, of a very different type. Uh, She's an American writer. She's at The New Yorker at the moment. We had such a fascinating conversation. Sadly, you only get to hear half of it now because unfortunately there was an epic failure in the technology. Like we're talking full ghosts in the machine um, halfway through. However, the day was partly saved by a really wonderful woman in the audience named Saren. So I'm giving you a huge shout out, Saren, if you're listening, who picked up the recording on her phone and incredibly kindly transcribed it for us. So we're looking at how to put a transcript of the second half up online if any of you want to sort of 
figure out, listen, read even to what happened in the rest of the chat. We'll keep you posted about that. But for now, you can hear at least the first half of these two very brilliant people talking about their ideas and, and their work. Yeah, Trick Mirror was one of my favorite books that I read over the summer. I think Gia is something special and, yeah, a, and a real is. critic um, mm. in the truest sense of that word, a real thinker, yeah, a deep such thinker. such an original thinker. Her perspective is like no one else's actually that I've encountered, but it feels relatable in so many profound ways because she's kind of emerged from this system that we've all been growing up within. I don't know. She Meeting her felt a bit like standing in the presence of a hologram from the future it was it was yeah it was I know but it really was she's yeah she's yeah and I'm I'm devastated that I wasn't there and also could not hear the end of the interview because I listened to it is actually terrifying when you listen to the interview because it starts making weird noises and you guys are like oh okay let's continue and then all of a sudden this like deafening screech <laughs> just like drowns out everything else and then the recording for 30 minutes is just this like terrifying noise oh they didn't turn the recording off because no. we unplugged the speakers yeah no the was... recording keeps going oh wow yeah it's it's scary it was spooky maybe we can release the screaming second half as like a halloween special yeah, i'm sure our listeners <laughs> would enjoy that no october i wish you could see the look she just gave me over the top of her microphone <laughs> <laughs> it was long suffering never <laughs> I what what is long pleasuring? Oh, no, come that's on, girl, <laughs> <laughs> pipe down. Okay. Anyway, um, we will let you know if we manage to figure out the transcript. Um, but for now, please enjoy the first half. Uh, listen to this interview, which I think, even though it's the first twenty minutes, is still super interesting, brilliant. Two really smart women doing similar things, but very different things at the same time, really bouncing off each other and with excellent questions from Miss Octavia Bright. Oh, Ms. Sorry. Doctor. Yeah. Doctors. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But anyway, after that, we will just be talking a little bit about what we got up to over the summer, what we enjoyed reading and doing culturally. And then we'll be back next mini-sode to the regular format. So enjoy this crazy first mini-sode of the year from Literary Friction. <laughs> and it's nice to hear, to hear you, to see you. What am I saying? It's yeah. great to be back. Is it is great to, to be say. back. We're very happy. Yeah, we miss, we miss doing this. We missed all of you guys. I want to start by asking both of you actually just how these books came together. Emily, let's begin with you. Did you set out wanting to write a collection of essays or did you have a particular set of ideas you wanted to explore? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I sometimes say that the book happened by accident. It started in 2013 when my dad, um, who'd been an alcoholic all my life, uh, went into liver failure. And the plot spoiler is that he's okay. Um, which is important to say. Um, But even after he was out of the hospital and after he was off the liver transplant list, I realized that I had all of these kind of chaotic thoughts and feelings and reactions just whirling around in my head. And the only way that I could deal with them was to get them down on paper. And I wrote them in this kind of blur, which is really, I mean, this is the the title, Notes to Self. I really wrote it for myself. And and, and it kind of vomited out of me. Um, and then I did nothing with it for years, literally years, because I never imagined anyone else reading it. It was really a private record of the personal self. And it was only in conversation with my partner that I was, he said, you know, this is, this is good writing. And when somebody says that and says, you can write and you have a voice, 
then you start to imagine other possibilities for yourself. And so I sent it to a publisher, a fiction-only publisher, <laughs> which is obviously a really good strategic move. <laughs> and they said, we would like to publish this and we would like you to expand it into a book. So it was their vision. And the moment at which they said that, I felt like I had been given permission. And I think women struggle, I think everybody struggles, um, but women in particular often struggle with this idea that their voices are not valid or their stories are not for public consumption and have to be sanitized or made quiet in some way. And this was a license to just go and be loud. And I, I'm, I'm quite good at being loud, it turns out. And, and so when I revisit that statement about writing the book accidentally, I think, no, I wrote it really deliberately. And I'm not going to pretend that it was just natural or a diary entry. I worked really hard to get it out and to get it onto the page. And yes, part of that was about personal catharsis. But most of it was about trying to be a writer. And that link, I think, between emotion and writing is a really strong and really driving one. And it's what I like when I'm reading work, you know, is, is things that have that dual address. They, they, may, they make you feel, um, but they make you think, and then they make you want to read more. Mm. Yeah, I agree. The work that I like the best definitely engages with that. Um, and Gia, you work as, as a journalist, so you're writing in a kind of essay format a lot. Um, with these, I know you wrote these essays specifically for this book. Do you conceive of them as very separate from your other work, or does it feel like a continuation? I think that the concerns I have in all my work, they, they circle the same things. I, you know, but I, I did concertedly write this as a book. I, I had gone from, I had been editor, I'd worked in women's media, I'd worked at blogs where um, I, w I was the editor and I was barely edited and it was so, it was so freewheeling and that actually, I feel so lucky to have had that experience because it got me over that hump completely because it was my job description to just vomit out whatever I thought could amuse people. And I was I learned day by day that that was actually okay and that was a good hurdle to have to jump through. And and so I, I, I was at The New Yorker for... Uh, I started The New Yorker in the summer of 2016 and then the election happened. And I you know, speaking, like that that was sort of a precipitating event. I hadn't wanted to write a book. I hadn't wanted to write a book before that. But then, you know, I think like a lot of people, I woke up the morning after the election with the sudden understanding that the thing that I had always been trying to do and the thing that was my job at The New Yorker was to, you know, make sense of things and bring out the sort of moral dimensions of the structures that we live in. And like, that's what I love to do and that's what I drew meaning from. And at the same time, that no longer meant what I thought it did. Like understanding with perfect clarity the moral resonances and stakes of a situation didn't lead to what I wanted, you know, didn't lead. And I was looking for a way to, I felt so uncertain and I didn't ever want to have that pre-election certainty that I had had again. And I started trying to find a way to write about this. I wanted to see what was a way that you could be, you could express this uncertainty and still be clear. How could you, like what was a, could you still, was there still a purpose to, you know, forming a narrative when you, the use of a narrative is no longer quite as obvious? And, um, and so, yeah, and so these 
these essays, in a lot of ways, they were things that I needed the space of a book to do. They were things that I needed to be able to do it as long as I wanted, whatever way I wanted, to do this thing that isn't necessarily an easy sell. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it must have been interesting for you working with an editor on the other side of things as well. Um, did you find the editorial process being edited by a book editor really helpful? Oh, actually, it's much easier than being edited. So actually, so the, I didn't finish that previous thought, which was I had been edited very tightly at The New Yorker, and that's what I had craved when I had been there. And I love being edited really hard. Like, I love when someone's like, this is a good start. You need to work on this for a month. And I'm like, yes, punish me, you know? <laughs> like, I, it's such a privilege. I think it's a most, like, journalists my age, certainly, it's a real privilege to be edited that hard and to be copy edited and to be fact checked and to have your work really, you know, my background in blogging, I just never thought that I would get that level of institutional scaffolding and protection. It feels really, really good. And then I was like, hmm, maybe I want to be free again. <laughs> like, maybe I want to write 11,000 words on athleisure as late capitalist fetish wear. <laughs> you know, and like, that's something the New Yorker's never going to run. Like, like, those ideas have filtered into other pieces, um, you know, like, ideas of optimization and the female body as a market asset and whatever, but, you know, I think I wanted to spread out and, you know, because there's, there's a thing when you, when you write for a publication, you triangulate the subject, your own point of view on it, and the outlet, and, and the thing you end up with is somewhere in between them. When you're writing a book, you're, in a lot of ways, I always think of my work as I am writing for myself. That's the highest bar that, it's, it's the hardest bar to clear. Um, but with a book, it especially is so. You don't have to think about pleasing or satisfying anyone but yourself, and I, I think I wanted that. It's a, sorry, I'm going to jump in and yeah, say, yeah. But, sorry, the academic in me, um, is because I had the opposite experience. In my day job, I write all the time as an academic and, and am an editor and love that process, but through working with Tram Press and also my partner who edited this book, I found that so much more rigorous. Mm. And what it made me really think about is how we talk about writing as a solitary process so much, and that it's so deeply collaborative, and that it's in editing that work gets good, because mm -hmm. I have the same punish me mentality. Yeah. And, and because it forces you to justify yourself, yeah. and to really think about how this is going to land. And so I, I actually think writing is quite easy. I think making it good is the hard bit. And that happens in the editing process. It's interesting what you say about the reputation of writing as being so solitary, because I think also when you're writing about the self or writing from the self, questions of narcissism, I want to ask you both about narcissism, not because I think uh, either of you are narcissistic in your writing, but because I just, I want to ask, like, is the personal essay inherently narcissistic and is that bad? Like, is narcissism always bad? It's a word that we think of in a terribly negative way, especially because of the way it's applied to political leaders of the current moment. But, you know, there's a lot to be gained from looking to the self in order to understand the world. And there's a quote actually from Gia, one of your essays you say, I think is in, in the introduction, writing is either a way to shed my self-delusions or a way to develop them. And I think this is such an interesting tension, right? Like. If you're, if you're plumbing the depths of yourself in order to understand the outside world, are you being narcissistic or are you being deluded, you know? Well, I think by definition, no. I think there isn't the definition of narcissism that you can't look away from yourself. So if you are doing good personal writing, you are, like, narcissism and good personal writing, I think, are actually mutually exclusive in a lot of ways. I don't know how you feel. Yeah, I, I think it's also, I mean, I know what you were saying about political leaders and so on. I think that is an 
a label that consistently gets attached to women writers, mm. right? When they start writing, I mean, it's the same stuff about women only write domestic fiction. And this idea that in talking about the self, women are s women writers or writers in general are somehow being self-indulgent. And, and I don't think that at all. I think that actually it's a political gesture to take up space and to claim that space and to claim ownership over that narrative. And then the other side of that is that while I was writing this, I kept coming down from my study and saying um, to my partner, no one is going to read this book. And, uh, and he would say um, in a really nice way, get up those stairs and uh, keep writing. And he's just write it for yourself and try and forget about any other kind of audience. And so that kind of... Um, solitariness around it, even though I've just said it's deeply collaborative, but still, that kind of exclusionary zone around the writing, where you're not trying to think about the audience or you know the bigger point you're trying to make. Instead, you're, and this is what you were saying about writing a book, the, the, the indulgence of that, the freedom of that, um, allows you to actually say something true. And it never ceases to amaze me that people will read notes or parts of notes to self and will say, oh, this is my story too, and then will tell me their story, and their story is not actually the same as my story, but they're connecting to, to some kind of emotional universality in it. And I think only by actually pulling back from trying to say something rhetorically true, which I was constantly trying to do, say something about society, um, and instead say something about yourself, which felt wrong. It felt like the opposite of what I'd been trained to do, but actually that is, was, was the only thing I have the authority to say. Talking about the opposite of what you've been trained to do, I wanted to ask you how it felt to leave your academic head. Amazing. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Um, did it feel, was it difficult though? I normally write essays that say, this essay argues that. I mean, the essay is not a person. The essay can't argue anything, right? So it was, it was, it was very freeing, and it was very scary. Um, and it's also perhaps why I chose the essay form because I'm trained to do it. An essay, whether it's academic or personal, starts with an idea, it takes you somewhere, and by the time you end, you're able to kind of step back and look at it slightly differently. And I really like the idea that an essay is the opposite of memoir. And I'd love to hear what you think about this, actually, because it's memoir is like this exercise in certainty, where you, know, you begin, you go through some stuff, and then you arrive at the amazing person you are today. And essays are this kind of fragmentary form where you can examine a theme or an idea or just one part of your life. And I think that is, is inherent in academic work, but is, is really an amazing form in personal writing as well. I have to say, you know, I, I feel really conscious of having started writing in a time where I was never made to feel narcissistic for writing about myself. I, I think that there, it's, it's interesting to see how, I think it's something that defines the last 10 years where like freedoms become available suddenly and, and, and selectively and, you know, and in different places and different contexts. And I feel really lucky. Like, I mean, I think that one of the reasons that the essays in this book are the way they are, which is like one, I used to edit personal essays all the time and, and even, but I don't think it's specific to personal essays where one thing that has, that I always would think about as an editor is the way that they would all wrap up in the same way. You know, like, like there would be this movement at the end of them and it would be like, and that's why, you know, like nevertheless, that's why I am still very good, you know? <laughs> like, 
Like there would be this feeling like this sort of, this sort of like ecstatic, like, you know, self-justification or something. And, and, and even, but with, with opinion writing, with, with, you know, columns about politics, things would also wrap up with that sense of certainty, with that sort of, you know, like, here's this horrible thing, and yet we pull together, you know? Like, and it's like neither thing feels true to how discussing our lives or our world feel, like when we are sitting at the bar and talking with our friends, you know, we lay out the situation, we're like, yeah, man, yeah, <laughs> you know? And so, and I, and I think, yeah, I, I, I am mostly interested, I've always written about myself. Um, one thing that I, feel self, I do feel self-conscious about is at The New Yorker, the most common edit I get is like, you wanna try starting this in the first person? And I'm like, what, it's The New Yorker, like why, like you want me to do that? And I feel sort of, um, I, I feel a little strange that that's um, a muscle that I am I'm good at using. And mostly because I don't want to become repetitive and I like want, but, but at the same time, I think it is true that the self is a thing that exists in context and the self is a really good way of illuminating systems. And, and I write about myself so much in this book is because I've, I'm the available evidence I have, you know? I have unlimited evidence, you know, right here. And, um, and it's, it's, always, it's always an entree into, into other things. Yeah, it's impossible to divorce the personal from the political, which I think um, in one of your essays, Gia, you talk about the fact that the general discourse about women's lives is now framed by feminism in popular consciousness, which is this wonderful leap forward, but it comes with its own complications, right? Mm -hmm. But this idea, this understanding, this generalized knowledge that the personal is political has taken us a long way, you know, I think that that has filtered down, that especially if you are a woman or from a racial minority, like nothing you can do exists free from a statement in the context of the political wider Situation and one thing that I find really like another thing that I feel has changed and changed very recently and you know and I don't know how much things are the same with the like media environment in the states in the UK but it's but uh, one thing that I feel really grateful for is I think within the last couple of years we've seen like with post Me Too I think we are coming to this understanding that women's issues are obviously people issues you know like they're not special interests they're you know they're I mean 51 percent of the population exactly right, <laughs> right. But, you know and, and, and this this very obvious realization i think it's you know it's it's really becoming working its way more into the center and one thing that i'm really grateful for in my job is that i, I mostly write opinion I, I mostly write criticism but i can report and it's now like I can show my cards that it's like, yeah, I'm a feminist. I believe in like free abortion on demand. And I can still, I can still write about reproductive rights. I, I can still go out and report about something. And it, it's sort of, I think that it is a more honest way of, it's not feigning this neutrality that I'm just this like objective self observer. It's like everyone's point of view. I think it's more honest to show your cards and then work from there, you know? Yeah, I think that's, Absolutely right. And actually, to relate that back to just the academia thing, um, Emily, you write really brilliantly about the problem of divorcing emotion from intellect in the academic world and the fact that these things are expected to exist very separate from one another. And actually, teaching is an emotional act. Reading is an emotional act. Writing is an emotional act. Why the hell are we not considering this? Why do we think of it as, as, as lesser somehow? Um, and I wonder, you know, obviously with this kind of, of journalism as well, Gia, like putting things in the first person, when you bring the eye into it, you bring emotion into it in a more honest way, I think, actually. Um, but do, Emily, do you feel optimistic about this gap closing in, in academia or in your relationship to your academic work and then this non-academic writing? 
Yeah, I, I do and I don't. I mean, you know, again, with the ambivalence. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think that more and more people are using the eye in academic work, and I think that's really good. And it's not just about emotion. We have bodies. Mm-hmm. We have bodies that sit at desks. We aren't these floating brains, though many of us like to think of ourselves as if we are. And, you know, the acknowledgement of the body. And I, I, I mean, I th- I'm a theatre lecturer, right? So uh, I spend a lot of time going to theatres and sitting in deeply uncomfortable seats. And, I mean, there was at one point I was considering bringing my own pillow every time I went. And, and I thought, this is affecting, I mean, on a serious note, this is actually affecting where you sit in the audience and how many shows you've seen and whether you've got the flu or not, whether you're trying not to cough desperately. You know when the lights go down and the only thing you want to do is cough. And that all of those experiences deeply inform how you react to that, but I'm not allowed to talk about that. And that is so artificial and it's so, it strips out the meaning um, from your opinion and your reaction. And so I think it's wonderful to see it shifting. I think a few people are now taking that risk. It still feels like a bit of a risk to publish like that. I can teach like that now, but to publish like a, and I had an essay um, in a Cambridge Companion and for anyone outside of the world of universities, A, well done, and B, <laughs> Cambridge Companions are about as canonical as it gets, right? And I had an essay on representing um, pregnant women in, in theatre. Um, it turns out there's loads of them. And uh, the I, I use my own experience as a way of talking about what it felt like as a spectator at these shows to have gone through a miscarriage and then to see it being represented on stage and how radical that felt for me. And I got a note back from the editor who said, we love notes to self. We just don't think it's appropriate for it here. And because... I am a senior academic enough now, not as senior as I would like. Um, (laughs) But I said, fine, I will pull the essay. It stays in or I pull it. It all stayed in. It's published in the companion. You have to do that. Yeah, yeah, yes. Round of applause, please, everyone. Definitely. Well, we hope you enjoyed that chat between Gia Tolentino, Emily Pine and me. And like we said before, we'll do what we can about the transcript because it feels really mean to leave you all hanging. Um, Anyway, welcome back to Literary Friction Minisode 7. Carrie and I are back to tell you a bit about what we got up to on our break. Carrie. Plit. Yes. Sitting across from me. Mm -hmm. Did you see or read or do anything brilliant while you were on your travels? I mean, this is a bit of a loaded question because I happen to know that you did. But I did share with the class. Let me tell you about it. (laughs) No, I I had a really good summer and I had some genuinely nourishing holidays, which I think is really important. Um, I also read for pleasure in a really purposeful way, which is great. And I was very pleased with the books that I read and the things that I thought and the authors that I was exposed to. So I'm, I'm feeling good. Mm, that's so wonderful. Yeah, um, it is. You do have to be intentional about it, don't you? When you're working in literature to actually make the space for pleasurable reading that you choose under your own steam, not because someone sent it to you or because you have to read it for work. And yeah, totally. And I'm I was, I was happy about that. I will be recommending some of those books that I read, I'm sure, on our show for many months to come. Uh, so I won't do that now. But what I did want to recommend was one of the things that facilitated that purposeful reading, 
which was going totally off grid. Uh, the dream. Yeah. So let me tell you about it. During my recent holiday to the States, Eddie and I were lucky enough to be able to stay in this tiny camp in the middle of nowhere. There was a cabin and a lean-to, no electricity, no service. We had to get water from the brook. We had to build a fire every day. We fell asleep under the stars with a campfire in front of us. Eddie was terrified of the bears, but <laughs> sorry. It's not that's under legit. The bus. No, bears it's not are legit. Scary. No? Well Are they not scary there? I don't think they're that scary. And they're just really cuddly. They just want to cuddle. Well, no, the they don't want to cuddle. Please don't <laughs> take that as my advice. But I think if you just put your food in a different place, it's fine. Oh, okay. Especially during the summer when they have a lot to eat. Amazing. But and anyway. Bit, when you said you're sleeping under the stars, are you literally just in sleeping bags out in the open air? So you are in a thing called a lean-to, which has, which is sort yeah, of... So you a, snuck that in earlier and I was like, what is that? <laughs> it's a three-sided structure with a, with a slanted roof. Oh, okay. So you're sleeping under a roof, but it looks out. Oh my God, um, heaven. Yeah, so it was really amazing. And, and you the don't stars have to carry a, like a tent with you and stuff, so you're not... Yeah, so what was nice about this place we were staying is that it came with all of these really old-fashioned sleeping bags and like blankets and things from when Abercrombie was actually a camping store. It was like out of, it was built in the 1900s and it sort of felt like it was still in the 1900s. Like we found some corn oil from like the 70s, which we then made grilled cheese sandwiches with, which was a mistake. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it, it was amazing. And we went on some really great hikes, but I also just read in this way that I haven't in years. And I, and it was because my phone wasn't sitting beside me distracting me with what it might hold on the internet or WhatsApp or Instagram or whatever. And it was such a blessing. And I was so, 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 so happy I did it. And so if there's a way that you can isolate yourself from the world and just engage more and be present with the people you're with and with the books that you've brought, I would really recommend it. I would like to say that I came back and was really sort of more mindful of how much time I spent on the internet and like how I use my phone, but I wasn't. And and if anything, <laughs> deprivation made me like starved for, I like as soon as we got service, I was on my phone for like an hour just like uh. updating. <laughs> Do you find that thing happens when it's in front of you where you like glom onto it and it creates this kind of vortex between the screen and your eyes and like everything else pales into the oh, background? Oh, definitely, yeah. It's so weird, isn't it? You. It's yeah, I was thinking about this a bit over the summer as well, that that kind of the kind of deep focus I experience with my phone is of a very different kind from the deep focus I experience when I'm writing or when I'm reading. And it's frightening. It's like very, very terrifying. Oh, my God. That off grid thing just sounds like the dreamiest situation ever. Was it hot enough that you didn't need loads of warm stuff at night? It was cool at night, but we were in sleeping bags. so It was fine. Um, Dreamy. Yeah. I brought some warm socks. Good, sensible carry plate. And you guys are good at that outdoorsy stuff together, aren't you? I think you need to be with the right, you need to be in the right team for that to not get uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. Well, you have to be comfortable with, for instance, not showering for a number of days. But yeah. um, sorry, maybe that's TMI. But no, yeah. I'm down with that. You can wash in the brook. Yeah, well, that's yeah. that's washing. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out I'm not as good at chopping wood as I suspected I might be. Oh, babe. <laughs> My axe skills need some work. But anyway, it was it was great. That sounds absolutely amazing. How about you? Well, I didn't have any time off grid at all, but I'm hoping to. I'm, I didn't really get away that much yet, but I'm going away to Greece in a couple of weeks, maybe less actually for, for a while. And I'm going to be determined to turn my phone off for a while while I'm there. 
Um, I did have three really beautiful days with my friend Vicky in Italy, though. She lives over there and I went over and we basically we drove to Liguria and we just ate unbelievably delicious seafood things and swam in the sea and just peaced out went on a couple of boats um and it was exactly what my soul needed I didn't read anything I was just there soaking up the sun and you know when you're with a friend who lives in another country you just you want to be engaging all the time also we've talked about how sometimes you need a break from reading and how that can be a really wonderful thing in itself yeah exactly so no shame no no shame I felt no shame yeah we had some hilarious uh, very intense conversations on the beach thinking that no one around us could understand and then the couple next to us eventually revealed themselves to be English and it was quite <laughs> hilarious <laughs> I'm not going to reveal the content of these conversations but you can imagine uh, we went deep into some yeah very private things so that was fun um, and mainly just this like this experience of eating really really delicious food actually reset me in a big way because I'm not great at cooking or paying attention to that kind of stuff. I, when I put my mind to it, I, I have a decent ability. It's just not something I prioritize at all. And I came back just from those three days, just feeling really, I guess, nourished actually by the food. So I came back and thought, right, I want to strap on this new skill and see if I can get a bit further with it. I like the idea of strapping on a skill. Yeah, it feels like something I have to, because it doesn't come naturally to me, the desire to, to do it. Mm. So it feels like something I have to appropriate in quite a like, like a prosthetic <laughs> <laughs> kind of way. Um, anyway, I, I've been asking friends for recommendations and I, I asked friends in real life, but also on Twitter and got this wonderful flurry of um, responses of, of great food writers to turn to. So I'm, I'm like getting into it with Nigel Slater and Diana Henry and Yota Motolenghi and a few others. Um, and I'm quite excited about it. Um, and just also, I think, engaging with quite a different kind of writing mm. as well, you know, food writing and literature about food. And there's a lot of people working in that crossover now between personal writing and recipes and things. I mean, Nigel Slater has been doing that for a long time. But yeah, it's fun. It's nice. It's very uh, light and it's not that ideas heavy. And most of the reading I do is very, very ideas heavy. And it's I'm discovering this kind of different way of being so soon I'm going to have you around to the space pod and I'm going to cook you some very delightful things that I will not burn <laughs> sounds delightful you yeah. I think you undersell yourself a bit as a cook because I have had meals cooked by you before and they were good yeah they're fun. but I'm glad you're mm. engaging with it more yeah it's just it's not that I I think I'm well I do sometimes make things that are so disgusting even I can't eat them because I'm not paying attention but I don't have that natural ability to look at three ingredients and be like oh I can make this yeah which is what I want to get to because also you know food waste is real and it's so much easier to be on top of all that stuff if you're a bit more instinctually connected to food Mm. so that's kind of my um what I want for autumn but what else what else did you get up to well I saw some great art over the summer the the work of Lee Krasner who I knew almost nothing about but I went to an exhibition of her work at the Barbican which is now sadly over. Oh, I was devastated um, to over the summer. That. Yeah, it was it was really amazing. Her actual art seems to have been very very overshadowed by the fact that she was married to Jackson Pollock, but her art is amazing and uh it was it was great to see her get this huge retrospective that wasn't about her life. It was really about her art and taking her art very seriously and her grasp of color and I think the exhibition was called something like Living in Color. So, I this is not my own interpretation but she's amazing with color and I just saw some pinks and oranges and greens 
juxtaposed against each other that really blew my mind. And one of the things that I like about abstract expressionism is that it really does feel like the kind of art that you have a different experience with when you see it in person. Big time. And I certainly felt that with Lee Krasner, just being there in front of those colors and those brushstrokes and those patterns and experiences was mm. was really special. They're like they're energetic beings, aren't they? Yes. So I'd recommend checking out her work if if you can see it, and and also just you know looking her up on the internet because she's a, a powerful woman. Mm. I was yeah, I was so sad to miss that exhibition. People were raving about yeah, it. Yeah, it was great. Actually, the the exhibition that I saw over the summer that really stuck with me was also at the Barbican. I think they're really killing it with their curating at mm. the moment. Um, it's always really intelligent and carefully put together and doesn't dumb things down at all, which is exciting to me. Um, I went to see the Artificial Intelligence Exhibition. Oh, that. So when I went to go see the Lee Krasner, that was the one that was really popular and everyone was queuing up for it. Yeah, it was it was rad. So the, the main reason I went was because John voiced one of the robots. <laughs> What? Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of nuts. Wait, how? Uh, one of the studios that he does work with, it was through them. And so he had to record a bunch of sayings, including something like, um, oh, I can't remember what it was now. Something like, are you happy with your life? It was quite intense. Quite an intense robot. So did you meet his robot? Yeah, we went and stood underneath it. His robot was, uh, it was kind of an oval thing hovering from the ceiling that you stood inside and then you heard these questions in John's very lovely voice. It was, it was really Was it weird. uncanny? It was quite uncanny. The trouble was we went right at the end of the exhibition because and it was super busy um, and it wasn't quite loud enough. You didn't really get the full hit of it, actually. But the exhibition itself was, was, was really, really smart, really brilliant. And AI is something that I think I didn't engage with as a concept for a really long time, probably out of fear, actually, and because I'm quite an analog kind of person. And um, it, I, I've resisted the sort of technologization, what a word, of my life quite intensely. And now, obviously, I'm powerless to resist and I'm as involved as anybody else. Um, and when I was writing my thesis, I read Donna Haraway's book, Simeon, Cyborgs and Women, which includes a really famous essay, A Cyborg Manifesto, mm. and got really into the idea of cy- us human beings as cyborgs and post-human ideas about... Um, you know, the phone becoming an extension of the body and you can't really separate these things anymore as we were talking about before, yeah. God, it all comes back. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's fascinating and really um, smart. She, I mean, Donna Haraway is a fantastic thinker, so if you if you haven't read her work, I would really recommend looking her up. And she was writing, I think in the 90s, wasn't she, in early 2000s? I mean, she's still writing now, but um, this stuff was very ahead of its time actually um but yeah the exhibition I was, Gia also refers to that essay she does in one of her essays in 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 trick mirror, in trick mirror yeah. yeah she does it's but be- it's very live stuff I think Gia calls it a, comp- a problematic or tricky essay and it is Haraway's writing is isn't for everyone but personally like I I think it's very fruitful to kind of return to and think about but the thing I loved about this exhibition was that they did a really great job of pulling together literature pop culture science archaeology even and then these extraordinary examples of robotics Um, and they really traced this lineage through science fiction and uh, historical digs to like you know those little plastic figurines that people collect of manga characters it was really smart Um, and it left me thinking a lot about what's on the horizon in terms of technology and the crossover between art and technology, but also writing about technology, AI in general, how 
where I don't know I guess it feels like a bit of a new frontier to me maybe partly because I haven't engaged with this stuff as deeply as as lots of other people until quite recently so I'm a bit late but it does feel like this new frontier of the way that even just down to the very basic level of like at this exhibition there was a lot of interactive stuff you have to move slowly through it because you're no longer just being presented with things to look at Mm -hmm. you're having to engage interactively you're having to really participate and it's it's art but it's also information it was exciting I felt excited by it it's funny to hear you talk about writing about AI because in the industry it's sort of known that AI is really really difficult to do books about and there have been lots of books about AI none of which have really worked a few have worked but if you send out an AI book, most editors will be like, oh, I already have an AI book and it didn't work. Interesting. So I think people are really interested in it, but they don't want to read about it. Yeah, maybe not in like a fictional setting. Do you think non No, in a non-fiction do? setting oh, is what I'm referring to. That mm. is interesting. I guess, it's fascinating to me. Well, I guess AI, the thing that is compelling about it is experiencing it. So in the exhibition, there was uh, the opportunity to have a conversation with, uh, it's a computer program, and I can't remember what it's called, but it was one of the most realistic AI um, conversation machines, I think. I don't know, it sounds really lame, but it, so you're basically, it's like you're, the format is like... Like the Turing test. No, it, but it was, so before this bit of the exhibition, there was, um, they had the Enigma machine and they had a lot of stuff about Turing and then they had this... It was like being in a chat room and you asked this computer questions and the response was the responses were so fast. It was uncanny because obviously it's it's picking up on the word cues as you type them. Um, But the conversational shape of the responses was very realistic and very human. And we caught it out. Like, obviously, we were there trying to catch it out and we did. But it took a while. Um, So I guess that's it. I don't know if I would want to read. And it's probably not that interesting listening to me describe that even. But to do it was quite exciting. Mm. So maybe that's the disconnect. I read quite a boring novel about somebody's relationship with a chat machine. Yeah. At some point, which I've now forgotten the title of. Yeah, it and I wouldn't recommend it, but it was yeah. Did you see that movie? Her. Yeah, I, liked I didn't that movie. see that, but yeah, like yeah. people were into that, weren't they? But again, I think it's about it's about like Scarlett Johansson's voice. Yeah, they're into Scarlett. They're yeah. not into AI. Everyone wants to be close to Scarlett. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was my um, that was my kind of art thing. And then did, I mean, I've got a TV thing. Do you have a TV? I have thing? a TV thing. Okay, hit me with your TV. Well, thing. my TV thing is really dumb but the only tv i've watched this summer is um the american office (laughs) which i've almost made my entire way through and i somehow never really watch it i i obviously caught episodes here and there because it was so popular at the time and i don't even remember why i went down this path of deciding that i wanted to watch it but it has given me so much joy really it has i found the office unbearable the british office or the American american office i've never tried the american one the british one it's that cringe humor that I just I don't have the stomach for it right so the American office I think it, it it's the tender version of the cringiness okay and it gets more tender as it goes along and it's really just about how everyone is a full human being and we're all trying to get along in the world amazing <laughs> amazing and you grow very attached to the characters and they do all these silly hijinks in their office <laughs> and Michael the boss is You know, he's an absolute idiot, but sort of a lovable idiot that everyone loves. (laughs) 
<laughs> I can't even I describe just it. You power down in the middle of that <laughs> sentence. Everyone, please remember that my dear friend and colleague here is very jet lagged. No, I, are you no, actually? I, I think in that moment, Carrie, you appeared to me like a robot. Are you oh, AI? Maybe this is the AI version of me that's returned from America. Yeah, you've just I've run been out replaced. Of juice. I need yeah. to plug you in. No, I well. I had a moment, I think sometimes the more emotionally attached to something I am, the less able I am to be analytical about it. And I feel that way about The Office, where I I sort of do not want to break down why I love it so much. I just want to experience it and love all the characters and, and retreat into its happy office world. Then do that. Okay. But I would recommend others do that. Nothing more is required. Without thinking about the experience. Yeah. Oh, that sounds really uneducated of me, doesn't it? No, no, I don't think it does. I really don't think it does. I think everyone needs that. I think you need to have things that you read or watch or listen to that you just appreciate and don't analyze. I think that's fine. I like to think I'm analytical about everything, but maybe I need to just discard that I idea. Need to also give yourself a break. Jeez, yeah. like, yeah. The analytical mind is, is a, it's, it's a wonderful thing to engage in, but also sometimes you have to, you have to give it a rest. How about you? What did you watch? Well, I have started watching this absolutely amazing program that I bet you guys haven't heard of, but I would uh, recommend it. It's called The Sopranos. Oh. (laughs) Tell me, is it about a choir? It's actually about the mafia. Uh, Would you believe it? (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to give it to you. I was the one who started with the cheesy joke here, so I think let's uh, let you off the hook. Um, yeah, The Sopranos. I mean, I know, obviously, you've probably everyone listening to this has already watched it, but it. I basically well, I haven't. You so haven't. tell me about oh it. God, yeah, I. Yeah, I've been saving it up. So I wanted to watch. I wanted to watch it for years, and then because it was this big long thing, and I was like, I don't want to start it and not be able to commit to it because I think I'm going to really love it. Um, and then there just never seemed to be the time. And then I was going to start it when I was writing my thesis, and I was like, No, I'll never write my thesis. <laughs> so I put it off and put it off and put it off. Anyway, now it's felt like the time. And um, I feel also quite smug to have found a program that has so many series that I'm really into just at the start of the seasonal change because I I struggle in the winter and I need to stack things in my favor to like help me get through those dark months. So I'm feeling good about it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously it's amazing, um, but it really is so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm almost at the end of the first season, but it's. The thing that's interesting about watching it now is that it's very dated, like the cinematography, the um, song choices, like one of the soundtracks in the episode I watched the other night was by Cake, you know, like it's so it's taking me to a completely another time. I'd forgotten about Cake. Yeah. I mean, never forget about Cake. They're great. (laughs) Um, And it's James Gandolfini gives this, you know, extraordinary, extraordinary performance. But I also I love the way it explores the therapeutic relationship. Like he's in therapy. The idea, the kind of the idea of a mob boss needing to go to therapy is inspired anyway. Um, But the way that it draws out that relationship. And I also think in the context of like, you know, the ongoing conversation about masculinity and the way that masculinity is starting to be broken down by writers like Thomas Page McBee, who we had on the show, but also more generally by journalists. And it seems like it's in the public consciousness a lot. The Sopranos is such an incredible exploration of masculinity and the fragile elements of a particular kind of toxic masculinity but also the tenderness that exists within that and I think looking at it watching it with the kind of contemporary lens that's critical about that kind of stuff is really uh it's exciting it's it's exciting to me it's such a smart show I've been meaning to watch it for years and I might have tipped me over the edge yeah it's the actors are so perfectly cast like there's not a weak link at all the script is uh, is 
yeah, bang on. Also, I've been missing, I mean, I know it's it's set in New Jersey, but it's it's very much like a New York kind of program and I've been missing New York a lot and it's been, I've been feeling connected to it. Yeah, so that's my, that's my big revelation, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I recommended The American Office, so I don't, we're not necessarily you know, at the cutting edge of television. We are ahead of the curve in some ways and not in others. And yes. I think that's fine. That's it. That is it. That is it. I think we can wrap this one up. Yeah, let's we? wrap it up. Um, well, there we go. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for coming back to us after this break. Big thanks to Rory at NTS and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email. Now that I'm back, I'm actually checking it. So, you know, send us a little note. Yeah, say hi. Litfriction at, at gmail.com. Oh my God, we do that, that in completely happened by accident. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. Quick, let's move on, move on. Um, yeah, we'd really love to hear from you. Please write to us, even though we're a couple of cringes. Um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a full show. Uh, it's going to be our show with Deborah Levy, or Deborah fucking Levy, I should say. Mm. Um, it was an absolute joy to talk to her. What totally. a woman. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt. This is Literary Friction. Bye.